And we're coming to the end of our series in Acts as we've been looking at the gospel going to the ends of the earth, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, as it says. Now, a while back, Rebecca and I were on a bus in uh, central London a few years ago now with a good friend of ours, a guy who was born in uh, eastern Uganda, uh, born and raised there, native Ugandan, and we were chatting on the bus. It was about 10 or 11 a.m. in the morning having a fun and lively conversation, enjoying ourselves. And we came to a stop, and there was a gentleman who had been sitting on the upper deck with us, reading his paper, and we thought he was quite happy. And, but as he walked past us, he turned around and he said, thanks for ruining my quiet Saturday morning, and then kind of stomped off down the steps as he went. He was British, of course, and you know, he saw that we had ruined his peace and quiet. And I suppose as I was reflecting on it afterwards, I was reflecting that more is going on there than just a grumpy Brit on a Saturday morning. What we hadn't understood is, of course, in, um, in Britain, there is this hidden rule that when you're on public transport, you don't talk to anybody, right? Now, if you're a, a visitor here and you haven't grasped that, then I do apologize if you've been getting glares when you've been trying to strike up a normal conversation. But that's the hidden rule. We're all in London together. We're thrust together. We live very close to one another. But if you're on the tube particularly, never start a conversation with anybody else. Just because they're sitting near you doesn't mean that they actually want to have a conversation with you. In fact, the nightmare scenario came for me a, a while back when I was on a tube line and slowly but surely everyone got off the tube line, got off the tube line until there was only me and one other man, another Britain, uh, left on the carriage and nightmare, we were sat next to one another, which breaks the other hidden rule, which is you don't sit next to someone if you can avoid it. So anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm making slight fun of the situation, but what it shows is different cultural norms, different cultural expectations can often lead to tension. And here we are in London, the most diverse uh, ethnic uh, and most diverse in terms of nationality city on earth. We've got over 300 languages spoken in the secondary schools here alone. All these people thrust together. And the, one of the big questions is, how do we get on? How do we get on when we are coming from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different ethnicities? And it's, of course, more than just a, um, a cursory problem for us, isn't it? It's actually a problem that we're seeing in the news at the moment. Just this last week, Trump has been here in the UK, and people have been protesting against him. And the reason is, is because he has become a figure that symbolizes much of the divisiveness of a new regime of politics, where we increase the borders, increase the walls, and we close ranks and come around our nationality, but we don't try to build bridges with other people. Of course, it's not just Trump, and it's not just um, in the US. We have the problems here in the UK. We may be a very diverse city here in London, but are we united? To look close to home, we may be very diverse in the churches around here, but are we united? Brexit exposed many of those divisions with caricatures on both sides, which showed actually that we haven't really worked out how it is that we can be a globalized humanity that really comes together. Because if you bring globalization into the mix and then bring urbanization into the mix, in other words, you bring people from all over the world, concentrate them together in a small space when we're living on top of one another in a city, it is a really important issue. How are we going to get on? Just thrusting people together doesn't make them get on. You know that as well as I do. And this isn't a contemporary issue only. This has been an issue for thousands of years. And it was a huge issue in Acts, which is why Luke devotes so much material to this absolutely foundational event when we get the apostles concluding. Look down at chapter 11, verse 18, right there at the end, this important conclusion. So then, even to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the other nations, 
God has granted repentance that leads to life. And you might be thinking that it's a bit strange for them to only get it just now. After all, wasn't Jesus crystal clear on this? Wasn't the Old Testament clear on this? Well, come with me as we try to understand why it is so important for them to get this, but also as we look at it, what was the problem that was meaning that they weren't understanding it? And indeed, what is the problem that causes so many of our divisions in society today? So let's look first of all, the problem, division by calling people unclean, and then we're going to look at the solution. But let's look first of all at the problem. The problem, as I say, is division by calling people unclean. It's difficult when we read this for us to grasp what a huge chasm existed in the mind of your normal Jew in the first century between them and the rest of the world. It's, it's hard for us to grasp, it really is. But you get some sense of how difficult it must have been for them when you think this is the Apostle Peter. He spent three years with Jesus. He saw Jesus treating people from different ethnicities, different nationalities, different backgrounds with the same love and grace. He saw Jesus taking the good news to regions around Jerusalem, which were known as Gentile regions. He saw Jesus healing Gentile people. He heard Jesus preaching about a gospel message that was for all. Peter knew his Old Testament inside out, and he wouldn't have known that in Genesis chapter 12, God promised to Abraham that he would bless him so that he could be a blessing to the other nations. He would have known Isaiah about the tent of the Lord extending to all nations. And despite knowing all this, and despite seeing Jesus' interaction with people like the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and despite hearing Jesus saying things to another centurion in Luke chapter 7, when he says, I have not found such great faith even in Israel as this Gentile man. Despite hearing all of that, and at the beginning of Acts, Jesus sending the apostles out to be his witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Even given that context, such is the weight of the cultural baggage. Peter does not yet get that the gospel makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And that just gives you an idea of just how tough it was for these first apostles in the early church to get it. And it's not just Peter. I know Peter is sometimes slow on the uptake in the Bible, and uh, we thank him for that because he makes us feel a little bit less thick. But it's not just Peter. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, in other words, the Jewish believers, which was the majority of the church, criticized him and said, you went into a house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Do you see the issue? The church doesn't get it. The apostles don't get it. Peter doesn't get it. It's just not in their thinking. And why is it not in their thinking? Well, let's try to dig into what's the issue. Look at chapter 10, verse 28. Very revealing words from Peter's mouth that tell us what the issue is. Peter said, he said to them, you are well aware that is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Okay, so at root, Peter and the other Jewish believers and Jews in general make a distinction between clean and unclean. So here's the view. We Jews, we are clean, we are acceptable, we are holy in God's sight. Anyone else is unclean and not acceptable in God's sight. That's the view at the end of verse 28. What is causing that? Well, there's a little um, distinction in verse 28. When he says, you are well aware that it is against our law, he's not meaning the Jewish law. He's not meaning the law of Moses. The word used in that, sorry to be technical, is athematos. And athematos means it is against our tradition 
or against our human laws, our human culture. So what Peter is saying here, and this is why Luke includes it, is we have a human tradition that has been superimposed on top of biblical mandates and biblical law that means that we Jews do not associate with people who are non-Jews. It's a human thing. Now, what's going on there? Well, here's what's going on. The human heart is so twisted, is so distorted, that what we do is we take markers of distinction, differences between people, skin colour, age, sociodemographic background, nationality, culture, uh, certain traditions that we keep. We take those things, that they, they are just things. They're just things that are in the Lord's wonderful diversity of a world. And we take them and then we distort them to be markers of who is in and who is out, of who is acceptable and who is unacceptable. We, we do it with all things. We can do it with anything. It's almost most pernicious when it's done with race, skin color. Because of skin color, I am acceptable. I am clean. Even if we don't use exact that language, you are unacceptable. You are not as clean as me. You are not as inherently valuable as me. They're just distinctions. They're just differences. Why should they equate to value? They don't. In reality, it's a human construct. It's a sociological construct. And you go into any society, anywhere in the world, even today, and you will see it happening time and time and time again. So the Jews were merely doing what every culture and subculture does. It takes a point of difference, and it says, on the basis of that difference, I am acceptable and you are not acceptable. It could be race, it could be subculture, it could be education, it could be demography, it could be nationality, it could be tradition, it doesn't matter what it is, the human heart takes it. It is a human imposition on a thing that merely is a matter of distinction. And the particular distortion here is that the Jews had taken the very law of God, the law given to Moses, which was a marker of distinctiveness, but never a marker of being superior. And they had said, because we have the moral law from God, and because we have circumcision, these make us clean. And therefore, anyone who doesn't have them or doesn't follow them or doesn't do them is unclean. That's the mistake they were making. Now, I wonder, do you recognize it in your own heart? Do you see the way you do that as well? Sometimes it's so subtle, so subtly ingrained, we don't notice it. I remember the first time I traveled internationally, and I was going and I was watching some Christian teachers um, speak in a different context. And I remember sitting there, and I just caught myself sitting there thinking inherently. I, it was a subconscious thought. It was almost a foundation for my thinking. I'm being vulnerable here, so you, know, you can work out whether it's just me or whether it's in your human heart as well. I remember sitting there thinking, I'm evaluating them. I'm immediately putting myself in a position of being superior. I'm a good teacher. I know what I'm doing. I wonder if they're as good as me. Well, then they're doing all right, but they're not. And I suddenly realized that my whole demeanor was wrong. My whole disposition was one of superiority. Why? Because I'm British. And because we have deeply ingrained in our British subculture, still from the imperial days, that we are better than the rest of the world. And so as a result of that, it was just my default, and I never deconstructed it. And suddenly I saw how ugly it was. And I suddenly realized that these men and women had far more to teach me than I had to teach them. So where did this superiority complex come from? It was something I had taken and distorted in my heart on a mere matter of distinction of where someone was born. We all do it because the human heart is so twisted. Two things to say about it. First of all, it is a wrong view of God's law. God's law was never intended as a means of superiority or acceptance. It was always a gift 
on the back of grace. So to take the law or circumcision and to say you're in, we're out, is an, abhor- is an abhorrent thing. Secondly, it's a wrong view of God because the view implicit in this, and the Jews, the reason the Jews did it was they thought God is holy and God cannot therefore come into contact with anything that is unholy. And therefore, if God comes into contact with anything that is unholy, it contaminates God. So they saw themselves almost as if the guardians of God's purity and holiness. They feared that if they were impure, that would somehow contaminate the holy and pure God. And you can see, in some sense, that is the way that purity and contamination works, isn't it? You have something that is sterile. And if a contaminant comes into contact with it, it is no longer sterile. My wife is a doctor, and painstakingly over the last few years of having two babies, I now understand how sterile you know, feeding bottles and things work. I no longer contaminate them. But it's not always that way, because, for example, if I get hand sanitizer, my unsterile hands do not contaminate the hand sanitizer, is it? The hand sanitizer instead cleanses my hands. So you see, it doesn't always work like that. And God is much more like a source of perfect purity that when he comes into contact with the unclean, he doesn't become unclean, he makes the unclean clean. That is how God works. And so the Jews had far too small a view of God. They saw them as protecting God's holiness. God doesn't need human protection. He never has, he never will. He purifies the unclean. He lifts up the unclean. They'd got a wrong view of God. So a wrong view of the law and a wrong view of God. And can I say, as we look around our world today, that is still the problem going on. We have to be very careful that just because someone looks different, acts different, votes differently, we don't look down our noses at them and say, I'm clean, you're unclean. We will never get unity if we do that. We need to recognize the way our hearts distort those things Markers of distinction are not markers of superiority. God is a diverse God, one God in three persons. And as a result of that, he's made a diverse world. And those sources of diversity are to be gloried in, but never to be lauded over people. That's the problem. So how then does God work the solution? Well, let's look at it. First of all, the first part of the solution is God acts to heal the division. God acts to heal the division. We're not going to go through it, but um, Luke so wants us to get this and so wants Peter and, Ev- and the church to get this that he actually repeats what happens three times. Alex just read it twice for us. And we missed out the middle bit because it gets repetitious um, by nature. But first of all, in 9.43 to 10.23, Luke narrates the events, and we had that read for us. Then the bit we missed out, 10.24 to 10.48, we get the events narrated by Cornelius the centurion. And then 11, chapter 1 to 18, we get Peter narrating the events to the church in Jerusalem. Now notice the repetition of three. Three times in our narrative we get it repeated. Three times in Peter's vision he gets the same thing happening. He gets the vision repeated three times. Now if you know anything about Peter in the Bible you know that he and number three have a history, right? He denies Jesus three times. At the end of John's gospel Jesus reinstates him three times. And so it seems that this is God's way of getting through our hard hearts. He repeats things three times. And so the repetition here is to really help us to see, because he wants us to be absolutely clear. The gospel is for all. The gospel has always been for all. There is no distinction. Let's look at how in the first part of God's action we get that. First of all, look down at chapter 11 as Peter tells the story, and we get a divine vision in verses 4 to 10. 
Starting from the beginning, Peter told the church the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. So this is what's happening. In the Jewish um, moral, sorry, in the Jewish Mosaic law, there was a distinction between animals you were allowed to eat and animals you weren't allowed to eat. And Peter has a vision of a sheet coming down with all kinds of animals, clean and unclean, all mixed up in a big jumble. And then he hears the divine command, get up, kill and eat. And he says, well, I can't, I'll contaminate myself. And then he gets told off effectively in the vision by this friend and says, do not call that which God has called clean, unclean. And effectively, stop making the food law distinctions. But of course, it's not just about food. One of the reasons the Gentiles were considered unclean was because of the food they ate. You still get that today. Um, some Jewish people would think that a non-Jewish person is unclean for eating pork because it's an unclean meat. But here... The Lord is very clearly saying there is no unclean, clean distinction anymore. That is gone. That has passed away. That was for a time to mark you out as distinctive, but never better. And it doesn't apply anymore. And it happens three times. At that moment, we get a divine command. Verses 11 to 12. These men turn up from Cornelius the Centurion. Verse 11. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation. Literally in the Greek, it means to stop making a distinction, to stop separating yourself. Don't separate yourself, but go. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house, which, by the way, would have been considered something to have made him unclean, but now it doesn't apply. So the divine vision, and then a divine command, no hesitation. Don't separate yourself anymore. Go. Be with them. Get amongst them. They can't make you unclean. They never really did make you unclean. Go with them. Thirdly, the divine preparation. God's timing here in verse 13. He told us how we had seen an angel appear in the house and say, send a Joppa for Simon. So at the same time that Simon is having a vision, Cornelius is having a vision, which itself is instructive that Jew and Gentile alike are getting these visions. Verse 14, he will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. In other words, the Holy Spirit is saying, go and get Simon. He's going to save you and your whole household. Simon's hearing that. Peter is hearing that. And he's saying, well, salvation is, being, is coming to this house. They are getting a vision just as I'm having a vision. The Lord is orchestrating it all together. So there's a vision, there's a command, there's the preparation of God, and finally there's the action in verse 15. As Peter began to speak, he says, the Holy Spirit came on them as it had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift of the Holy Spirit who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? So God gives his own presence to Jews and to Gentiles. Do you see? All of the Lord's action to confirm to Peter there is now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The Lord wants to save non-Jews just as he wants to save Jews. He makes no distinction and he has to act in those four ways, repeating it three times so that Peter finally gets it. And dare I say that he wants us to get it as well. Do you see how concerted, how focused, how intentional the Lord is about us getting this message? There is no 
distinction. My gospel is for all. So go. Go to all, he says. Second part of the solution is, of course, God's gospel to heal the division, because it only makes sense for God to send his people to all if he's got a gospel that can bring salvation for all. And I want us to see in the second part that God's gospel heals the divisions. One of the striking things about the distribution globally of Christianity is that it would be fair to say, when you look at the stats, it is the only truly global religion. Let me just give you the stats on this. Buddhism, 98.6% of all Buddhists live in the Asia-Pacific region of the world. Hinduism, 99.2% of all Hindus live in Asia. In other words, for Buddhism and Hinduism, they are very culturally, nationally, ethnically bound to particular places because they're bound up in the practices of those places. Even Islam, and even with a huge push over the last 50 or 60 years or so to try to take it to non-Muslim nations, even in the context of globalization, two-thirds of all Muslims, whether Sunni or Shia, live in 10 countries two-thirds are concentrated in 10 countries, and 62% of all Muslims live in the Asia-Pacific region. But consider the stats on Christianity. This is remarkable. Christianity forms the majority of population in 158 countries of the world. And apart from the Middle East, which is interestingly where it is now currently growing the fastest, this is the spread amongst the other regions of the world. 37% in the Americas, North and South America, 26% in Europe, 24% in Sub-Saharan Africa, and 13% in Asia Pacific. Do you see what I'm saying? All other religions are bound to particular ethnicities, particular cultures. Christianity has in it unique seeds of going to all, of being spread amongst all. It is unique. And as we go through the gospel that Peter preaches in chapter 10, I want you to see why it is for all. Look down at chapter 10, verse 36, as Peter describes this gospel to Cornelius and his household. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Not just the Lord of the Jews, not just Lord of Israel, Lord of all. Now, in the ancient world, this was revolutionary because every nation would have a national deity. You know, a little bit like we have our national football team. They were the particular deity who was going to root for you and go to bat for you in a war. And so the only real point of having a god was if he was your god and therefore he could fight against other gods who were not your gods. So Christianity from the off, the Judeo-Christian religion, was unique because God always revealed himself as being a god for all nations, a god who would not take sides which kind of wasn't so good when you went to battle because God could just as easily judge you as go and work for you if you'd been you know, not keeping his covenant. But God was always a God for all. So when Jesus comes, no surprise, he is Lord of all. In fact, that's what his resurrection is all about, a declaration of him being Lord of all. And not just that, but in Jesus' life, in verse 37, look what Peter observed. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all, not just the Jews, who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. In other words, Jesus' ministry represented his identity. He went to all people. He healed all people. He gave the gospel message to all people, because he's Lord of all people. So from the off, the gospel message is for all. Now, I know us Brits don't like to celebrate it, but we did have, unfortunately, the um, remembrance of the US Declaration of Independence on the 4th of July. 
And let me just read to thrill the American brothers and sisters in our midst the opening words of that. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, excuse the historic vernacular, are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, you might want to dispute whether it's self-evident, but certainly it's scripturally evident. All people are made in the image of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all are equally dignified bearing his image. That is the starting point of the gospel. All people carry God's image, There is no superiority in the human race on the base of ethnicity, class, education, or any other cultural marker you choose. We're all made in God's image, all equally dignified. We really need to remember that today. Second point, notice that the gospel is not just about a Lord who is Lord of all, not just for the Jews, but the gospel is sent with witnesses who are witnesses for all, not just a select few. Look at verse 39. We are witnesses of everything Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people. Do you see the movement? Not everybody saw the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but God gave witnesses who would tell everybody about it. So it goes from those few who had that um, witness to everybody. In other words, the gospel is not for a select few Illuminati who had a private spiritual experience in a cave and held on to the seeds of power themselves. It does not work like that. It was a public resurrection. It's a public truth. He's a public Messiah. He's publicly Lord of all, and it's been publicly declared from the word go. It's always been public. In fact, the very word gospel means a public declaration of good news. It's always been for everybody. It's never been for a few, and it never will be for a few. So we need to realize we've got to take it to everybody. And that just makes your tone of voice so different with the gospel. Because you're not saying, I have a spiritual experience that I'm wanting you to have as well. You're saying, this is a public truth in space, time, and history. Have you reckoned with that yet? As the Apostle Paul says later on in the book of Acts, these things did not happen in a corner. And here's the great thing about truth. Truth is its own advocate. Can I say that again? Truth is its own advocate. It stands up to scrutiny. A fair-minded person honestly engaging with the truth will work out whether something is true or false. So our tone of voice when people come to inspire and they're looking into it is to say, it's not for me to pressure you. It's not for me to you know, browbeat you into submission until you accept it. It's true. It's public record. Have you looked at it? Have you engaged with it? Have you reckoned with it? Kick the tires on it. If it's false, you'll be able to prove it false. If it's true, it will stand up scrutiny. All we ask from you is to recognize that you're not neutral, you're biased, and to give it a fair hearing. So the tone of voice is so different, right? No forced conversion. Just engage with the truth. Lord of all, witnesses for all, Oh, and thirdly, majestically, forgiveness for all, not just for those who keep the law. Look at verse 43. All the prophets testify about Jesus that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All the prophets testify about him. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Forgiveness for all. In other words, God does not accept people on the basis of their effort or their merit 
but he accepts people on the basis of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Now, please see how this gospel uniquely deals with the problem. If the problem is a distortion in the human heart that takes markers of difference and twists them to say, I am better than you because I've got something that you haven't have, whether skin color or a law or a cultural distinctiveness or an education, and that makes me better. Do you see how the gospel works? The first thing the gospel says, is says, we all need forgiveness. There can be no pride. There is no standard that you can make up or you can reach, which means God will accept you because you are not good enough for God. God's standard is utter perfection. And you, my friend, whilst you have high ideals, can I put it bluntly, you are a wretch. You distort things, you twist things, you cause divisions. You can point to the problems out there, but the problems are right in here, in your heart and my heart. And therefore, God cannot accept you for the, who you are in your works and in your good efforts, no matter how well-intentioned you think they are. And the gospel equally humbles us all. It says we're all wretches before a holy God. None of us have a chance. We're all beggars before a perfectly rich God. That's the first move of the gospel. And so it humbles us and it does away with the distinctions. And then it comes along and it says, but you are so loved that he was prepared to send his son to die for you. He died the death that you deserve to die. In himself, he took all of the walls, all of the hostility, all of the divisions, and he smashed them to bits. And if you get that, then you're forgiven, my friend. Not because of anything you did, but because of what he's done. And do you see how that works? Humbled and then graciously accepted. So that then you look around and you say, how can I feel superior to another person? It is remarkable I'm accepted. It's remarkable I'm forgiven. And suddenly the dividing walls of hostility have been torn down. Equally humbled, equally loved. A gospel message of forgiveness for all. So there we are. The problem is a division that the human heart sets up. The solution, God acts in space-time and history in the book of Acts to show us that he has a great intention for the gospel going to all. And then he gives us a gospel message that is about him taking a message of forgiveness to all. And notice, finally, the final gift, as it were. He gives his very own presence. The Holy Spirit is given to all. Verse 44 While Peter was still speaking those words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Peter was there at Pentecost. He now sees exactly the same signs that he saw at Pentecost on that first day of the Spirit being given in the lives of these non-Jews. And this is what it means. Imagine you had someone in a community. Imagine they were looked down on by that community. Imagine that people said that they weren't accepted within that community. And imagine that that had worked on them such that they didn't feel accepted. Then imagine that one day, somebody that all of that community held in the highest esteem, maybe a sports star or a movie star or the queen, came and voluntarily said to them, I'm coming to your house. What would that do for that person? Wouldn't it do two things? First of all, it would give that person a remarkable sense of confidence and assurance. If they were loved by this person, then actually they knew they were loved once and for all. Secondly, wouldn't it restore them in the community? Because the person that the community esteems says they're accepted, they're valuable. And now the whole community would esteem them and accept them as well. Friends, that is what happens when you realize the Holy Spirit is given to all. It esteems, the Holy Spirit esteems all people. He will be given to all. And so all people are equally dignified. All people are equally raised up. Not just for a few, but for all people. Well, as I close, two words of application. Can I ask you to reflect? 
What are your cultural, ethnic, sociodemographic sources of pride that may be barriers to others? We all have them. Are you aware of yours? If you say you haven't got any, my friend, you've got them, they're just blind spots. We all have them. Knowing them and confronting them is part of the battle. Can I speak to us British for a moment? I think that one of ours is about um, space, our space and our possessions. We are, by all accounts, a very inhospitable nation in Britain. Ask anybody who travels this country. They really struggle with how, I suppose, how rigid we are about opening up our doors to our houses. Often because we, I think we're a home-owning democracy under Thatcher, and so we have great source of pride in our homes, so we don't open up our homes. But we've really got to get over it. You know, hospitality is not making someone feel at home when you wish they were at home. Hospitality is not that. Hospitality is saying, God has given me something, and it's here to bless you. And if you really want to get to know people, open up your homes. It's a way of opening up your hearts. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It's not about impressing them with a meal. It's about getting them into your lives. A pizza bought from co-op at five minutes' notice is just as acceptable as a gourmet Gordon Ramsay steak. Just open up your homes. And you know what it communicates to the nations? That you're prepared to open up your hearts. Be less boundary, Brits. Open up your homes. Open up your hearts. And in so doing, you're going to learn a lot from other nations. Reflect on your sources of pride that may be erecting barriers. Secondly, go. Notice the movement in the text. Cornelius's friends have to go to Peter. Peter has to go to Cornelius. The gospel has to go to the nations. We are in a rare situation that the nations, for us who are British, have kind of come to London. But friends, it still means you've got to go. Sometimes it's crossing the room to a person in church you've not welcomed before. Sometimes it's crossing the street to a person you walk past every day and you've not said hello to before. Sometimes it's crossing the barriers which other people around you are erecting. You say, I'm not going to buy into that. I'm going to cross. I'm going to go. What is the going for you? Are you ready to go? Because to put it honestly, you would not be someone forgiven in Christ if he hadn't gone for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful gospel message. What a message it is, a message of forgiveness for all because Jesus is Lord of all. Forgive us for the distortions of the human heart that say we have a law that makes another person unclean. Lord, we are sorry when we do that. Please highlight in each and every one of us those distortions, those barriers that we erect. And teach us instead to be gospel-minded people who open up our homes, open up our hearts, and who go for the sake of others. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.